This evening I'd like to talk about some of the difficulties that we face in opening the heart, particularly in the context of our retreat here. And I want to talk uh, first, really, more generally, about some of the difficulties of opening the heart. And in most of the talk, uh, relate these difficulties to the traditional teaching of the Buddha about what he called the hindrances to awareness, to an open heart, to clear seeing. And I'm doing so at this point in the retreat when it, we've actually done about three full days. For some of you, it may feel like three full weeks. You may not even remember your zip code. Uh, <laughs> we won't do a test. Um, and we may feel right in the middle of it, and sometimes the joys may be very full, and sometimes the difficulties may seem, may seem quite thick. And so this evening I'd like to mention them and give a number of practical tips and guides on how to work with some of the difficulties which we face. So I want to begin with a story which I think expresses the spirit of metta or loving kindness. And this is a story I just heard for the first time at lunch. <laughs> and so it's... Um, I actually heard it from my parents who came to visit. It's always good to talk to one's parents while preparing a Dharma talk. (laughs) And the story was the story of um, a very great woman who just died. Her name is uh, Shirley Chisholm. I don't know if many of you know her. I think she must have been in her 90s or so. Um... She was an African-American member of Congress who represented Brooklyn. And um, I got to meet her because I once uh, worked in the U.S. Congress. Now I'm here. (laughs) Not sure what that says. Um, In any case, I worked there there for a while, and I, I met her, and she was indomitable. She was about five feet tall, and full of energy. And in 1972, she ran for president. I'm not sure if the election was fair in that year, but she did not win. (laughs) But the the story comes from that time. Uh, Also running in that race was uh, George Wallace, And some of you know George Wallace was the uh, governor of Alabama and a kind of arch uh, segregationist. Segregationist, is that right? And had been very uh, combative and defying the federal government in the early 1960s. And he ran for president in 1972 as a kind of um, continuation of that resistance. And some of you may know, at one point, he was a shot during the campaign. 
and was in the hospital. And Shirley Chisholm went to visit him. And they had a conversation. And he said to her, I bet you that your people won't like the fact that you're visiting me here. And her response was, uh, I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. And she stayed with him. And not too long after that, um, she was the sponsor for a bill that was raising the minimum wage. And he helped her to gain the support of Southern members of Congress. And some of you know that later George Wallace really did a kind of U-turn on issues of uh, race and so forth. And to me, this shows some of the uh, power of metta, because what was that but a moment of metta? Very simple. I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. And so as we, as we practice, we have a sense that there's something very basic and simple that we are cultivating in our beings. The Dalai Lama talks very simply. He says, my religion is kindness. That's the heart of what this is about. All the doctrines all the complicated formula in Buddhism about emptiness, the Dalai Lama says, if you have to choose between emptiness and kindness, choose kindness. I don't know if that's a choice for some of you, but that's what the Dalai Lama Lama recommends. And the the Buddha talks also about that quality of metta as this, this core of our being. He says that the mind and heart are shining, but they're covered by defilements. And in the text, he likens or he connects this brightly shining part of ourselves with metta. And he says that when the mind and heart are liberated by metta, are freed by metta, they shine and glow and radiate. And he likens it to the radiance of the moon. And yet it's, um, even if we have that sense and have that glimpse and know certain moments when that's really uh, come forth very strongly, there still are a lot of difficulties. And it's hard sometimes for uh, metta to appear. It's hard sometimes for it to stay for a while. I remember the first time that I did a sustained period of metta. It was about 15 years ago. And I was uh, doing uh, a self-retreat for about three months. And then near the end of that time, I wanted to do metta, and I was doing it by myself. I, wasn't, I didn't have the benefit of talks about metta or even actually instructions. 
but I was doing the metta nonetheless, and it wasn't so easy. It felt sometimes pretty mechanical, um, a little more mental. I didn't feel like I was really accessing my heart so well at the time. And yet I kept on doing it. I had that uh, perseverance and dedication that I really have uh, felt, and I think we've all felt uh, from all of us. I think we all can feel that quality of dedication. And so I was doing the metta and kind of going and doing it. And then one morning, outside of my formal meditation, I heard myself say to myself, I love you. (laughs) I was quite touched. (laughs) And... I knew that something was working. (laughs) You know, it was kind of, you know, it had to appear, as it were, on the margins. It's kind of interesting, you know, and then it it got a little bit bigger. And Anyway, so don't, these things work not always in the usual predictable or linear ways, so look out for what happens after breakfast. (laughs) It could surprise you. Um... And so we come here, though, and we, we know, again, we know that uh, spark of metta that we feel sometimes, but we also have a range of uh, ways that metta doesn't always appear, whether it's, um, whether it's something like what I was experiencing, that the metta feels uh, mechanical, or that our minds are very busy and active, and or the metta feels very verbal, or we feel like I can't access my heart. Where's my heart? I have a heart, don't I? Was I one of the defective humans that was made without a heart or without a link to my heart? What's, what's the story? Um, or we can experience what we talked about some this morning. We can experience um, anger you know, or the, the difficult dreams, or we can experience a lot of self-judgment. we can have a sense that, uh, again, uh, there must be something wrong with me. I know, look at all these other people. They're clearly experiencing metta much more than me. And we can have that that quality of doubt. And it's, um, these are, these are normal parts of the practice of metta. It really, uh, they really um, come with the territory. And in a way, what we somehow need to do is to find ways to work with and understand those difficulties, those ups and downs. And so those, those kind of issues arise for ourselves as individuals. And you know, outside of the retreat, we also can wonder about uh, what's the quality of my love or my metta, you know, is my, you know, am I confusing as I think I was uh, raised to confuse being nice with being loving. You know, and many, many of us have that kind of conditioning where, you know, is it, am I being uh, really loving when I'm nice or is there something that's um, what um, um, needy or uh, unresolved that we have to get to that's more at the core, that's driving our sense of love and connection. You know, we were, there also, I think, are a lot of uh, cultural uh, forces that make metta 
difficult. Um, we were talking this morning in the yurt uh, about some of the ways that the culture at large seems to have a pronounced mean streak lately. And we were, this will give you an idea of what we sometimes talk about while you all are silent, but we were, <laughs> but we were, we were actually talking about these television shows, uh, American Idol. <laughs> I'm sorry to remind you that that is a reality. Um, and the, I haven't actually really, I've never seen that, but I've seen it advertised. We were talking another show called The Weakest, the Weakest Link, is that it? And there are shows in which meanness is glorified. You know, when you, when you think about it, it's, it's there, they are public places where being mean and disparaging towards others is really um, supported and emphasized, and people get some kind of satisfaction out of that, it's, it's supposed. And there are a lot of ways in which the, the culture can be... Um, really not so supportive of this quality of metta. I remember in, in sports there's a phrase, nice guys finish last. And I think I, I won't get into this too much, but there's a whole complex of issues around what, uh, about love being and metta and the qualities of metta being really weak and that to really be strong you have to be mean and use force. There's a tremendous, I think, amount of confusion about that, all wrapped up with confusion about masculinity and so forth, and I won't go that direction, but there, it's, it's very powerful in the culture. You know, that, and I, so, I, so in that way, I believe that uh, developing metta and seeing that it can be a tremendous force for strength actually really helps to transform the culture in very powerful ways. So we can see that there are personal difficulties in doing metta. There are cultural ways that the, the aspects of metta are not so much supported. And what we, I think, learn to do in the metta retreats and what we really uh, want to emphasize and what I want to emphasize particularly tonight is that it's very possible to identify and work with these difficulties And in fact, one of the, uh, I think, the glories of contemplative practice and particularly Buddhist practice is that difficulties become workable as opposed to just being curses or problems. And that's the spirit that I want to encourage tonight for us to, um, as it were, take in further. That uh, we have difficulties in metta, but we should see these as part of the journey and not so much as an indication of something being wrong with us. It's actually a sign that we're doing the practice right, that we have difficulties. So if, you're, if you don't have so many difficulties, you may be doing it right. And if you have a lot of difficulties, you're probably also doing it right. Is anyone not included? It really, what that really suggests is that the sincerity of our effort is what's most important. It's not so important whether we have ups, whether we have downs, but it's the sincerity of effort that really matters the most. In the context of Buddhist practice, there's a way of understanding 
uh, working with difficulties, which some of you know, those of you who've been on Vipassana retreats know quite well, there is a teaching called the teaching of the five hindrances. And the hindrances are some kind of um, compulsive desire and attachment, some kind of compulsive aversion, second. Third, what's usually translated as sloth and torpor. Clearly translated around 1890. (laughs) (laughs) I've never, outside of talks on the hindrances, I've never heard anyone in English utter the words sloth and torpor. (laughs) But that's the third. And, And the fourth is restlessness, And the fifth is doubt. And what I want to do is to talk about these uh, hindrances, particularly in the context of our intensive metta practice. Our general suggestion in terms of working with these kind of difficulties is that when difficulties like compulsive desire or compulsive aversion which may take the form of anger or judgment, when those are present in a sort of mild or moderate way, we suggest that they can be start part of the background and we can still continue with our phrases. We still continue with the metta practice. When they become more strong or foreground, just as a guy was... Uh, talking this morning in terms of the question about how to work with anger, when they become more foreground, then we may use some other tools like um, mindfulness practice or some other ways of working with them. But just to know that the general guideline is we continue with the metta practice, even when these hindrances are there, as long as they are uh, somewhat um, in the background. We don't have to give attention to them. So the first hindrance, or the first of these uh, difficult energies, because that's actually another way to translate the Pali term rather than hindrance, which I don't know, that sounds like we shouldn't have them. But difficult energy probably is more accurate. So you might think of these as difficult energies that are just part of the journey, part of the uh, path of practice. So the first of these is a kind of compulsive desire, or in the context of metta, it appears as a kind of um, attached or um, maybe attached or possessive form of love or caring or kindness. In fact, in the teaching of metta, as I mentioned in the talk on compassion, there is a very... uh, for me, powerful and subtle teaching called the teaching of the near and far enemies. And if you remember, each of the Brahma Vihara or the divine abodes, metta, compassion, joy and the joy of others and equanimity, each have what are called near enemies, which are states in which what appears seems to be 
the quality of one of the Brahma Viharas, but it's actually in a way is masquerading a kind of um, imposter or an appearance that represents more a distorted form of metta or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity. And so, as I mentioned, the near enemy of compassion is pity, which is a kind of distanced way of uh, relating to someone who's suffering. And the near enemy of joy and the joy of others would be a kind of uh, competition or a sense that, oh, that person's really happy. What about me? Something, And it can appear like, oh, yeah, I'm really being happy in the, in the happiness of others. And the classical... A near enemy of equanimity is indifference. can look like equanimity, but there's actually no, uh, no warmth, no caring. So the near enemy of metta is this sense of attached, what we could call attached uh, love or attached caring. And in a way, we could say that to find that quality of attachment in our caring or our love is an occupational hazard of developing love. So it's really not something I think that we need to feel uh, bad about. We, We know that when we enter into caring, there's going to be some attachment. There's there often when we, for example, when we form intimate relationships, there's often some very strong kind of unconscious projection and almost merging that almost has to happen in the relationship before things can proceed. And then after about six or nine months comes what psychologists call the disenchantment phase. (laughs) And then there are a few more years to work with that. (laughs) And, you know, in, when we're in the caring professions or, you know, in, in teaching as well, teaching or serving or caring for others, being a caregiver, being a therapist, whatever, there are also ways in which we can get invested in, we can be caring, and yet it's almost an occupational hazard that we're going to be attached in different ways to what we're doing. We can be attached to the outcome. I can be attached as a teacher to how my students do, you know, how they perform, and I, I won't really necessarily care about them if they're not meeting my standards or something like that. Or as a, um, you know, we can do this with ourselves in doing metta. We can be caring about someone else, let's say. Let's say when we're in everyday life and we are developing metta and we're, we're wanting this person to be happy and the person fails to be happy in the way that we think is appropriate. And we can, we can see that the metta has a quality of attachment to outcome, that there's some kind of um, way that there's a distortion in the metta. And it's not, again, not a problem that this occurs. It's really something for us to be aware of and look for and notice and, and um, identify with, with, with mindfulness Another way that this quality of um, metta can get 
somewhat compulsive or somewhat attached is when we become very possessive in which we're deeply caring, but there's a quality of possessiveness that may be driven by something inside us that somehow wants to, um, that can only feel love when there's a sense of possession or a sense of control. And I think we all know in ourselves these qualities by which love or metta can get uh, somewhat distorted. Another way is uh, that it can be that the spirit of metta really gets a little distorted is when we have a very narrow circle in which we express metta. Maybe metta or love only gets expressed within a very narrow circle of friends. You know, the, but the quality of metta is more a sense of the warm heart brought to all beings with whom we're in contact. And it's, it's as we'll see in the next days, there's a sense in which metta goes outward and goes beyond that small limited circle. That's really the, the heart of metta. It's more like a kind of unconditional love rather than a possessive love. And it's something also to be conscious of, to see how can I bring my sense of caring to a wider circle. In some ways, that more attached quality of metta or love may be linked to some kind of um, inner pain or inner need that is part of what we explore when we do the metta practice. That there may be something driving us to be more possessive or be more attached. And as we do the metta, as Guy was saying last night, we in a way purify our love. We purify our our metta. We see ways in which there may be distortions. And so this is uh, one of the reasons why it's so... Uh, wonderful to uh, balance our metta practice with the vipassana practice. That in a way, we need the quality of clear seeing to help uh, inform our hearts. It's one way to say it. That we need to be able to see clearly what sometimes, um, to see those qualities of possessiveness or compulsivity or attachment and be able to notice them And the mindfulness practice helps with that. In the same way that in the context of the Brahma-vihara, that the factor of equanimity, as Guy mentioned, is a kind of balancing factor that helps us to not quite be so attached to the outcome of our caring or the outcome of our compassion. And there's a beautiful way in which we balance the metta with a quality of wisdom or a quality of clear seeing or a quality of equanimity. And so it helps us to um, look out for any, any tendencies to be attached. There are a number of wonderful uh, qualities that help uh, counteract that sense of, um, that sense of um, attachment or the tendencies to attachment. One of them is the quality of generosity, the quality of um, 
offering, in a way, our metta as a kind of gift without necessarily expecting something in return. And when we do metta in the world, we'll really be able to explore this quality of metta as a sense of giving, metta as a sense of of offering. One of my experiences that I had a few years ago, which really taught me a lot about this sense of giving, was when I visited the um, island of Bella Bella in British Columbia to be part of a potlatch ceremony among the Haltzuk people in, on an island that had no roads to get to it, about two-thirds of the way from Vancouver to Alaska in the winter. <laughs> and it's a... I was there for about a week, and the heart of it is a ceremony in which people give gifts for about three days straight. It's a continual cycle of giving gifts, in which gifts are... There's really... And the, the, the teaching there is really a sense of life, almost, as a continual cycle of giving gifts, in which gifts are always moving. There's a beautiful sense there of how we might actually look at our lives as a sense more of giving and receiving gifts, keeping things moving, being in relationship through giving without necessarily tallying up whether we're getting as much as we're giving or accumulating our gifts. It's a very different sense, and I think it's close to the spirit of metta, a sense of continual giving. Another quality that's, I think, connected with this open and free quality of giving that is metta is in the quality of gratitude. There is a sense in developing gratitude that takes us out of the sense of I want this for myself or I want this in a possessive way. And as we'll see when we work with metta towards all beings, there's a way in which we can really approach uh, our lives in this sense of uh, friendliness and gratitude towards all beings. It's really the spirit of metta. And I wanted to illustrate that by uh, reading you a book. It's not usually done in Dharma talks, but I'm going to read you a whole book (laughs) so you might want to adjust your posture (laughs) this is one of my favorite books you'll see that it it won't won't cut into our other sittings so this is a book called St. Francis Preaches to the Birds and I'll show you the pictures actually it's mostly pictures that's why I can Read it. It's, a, it's about the quality of gratitude. St. Francis preaches to the birds. So it starts, this is St. Francis. It's 5 a.m. Wake up, St. Francis. So he, he wakes up earlier than we do. It's 5 a.m. Wake up, St. Francis. He opens the window and sings, tra-la-la. <laughs> he brushes his teeth. Thank you, teeth. 
He washes his toes. Thank you, toes. He gets milk, drinks his coffee, says, thank you, coffee. He goes through the town, through the apple orchard, over the pasture, and up the hill. And the birds come flying, 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 (laughs) flying, 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 flying. No commentary. (laughs) Then St. Francis preaches to the birds until the sun sets. Yes. (laughs) Until the sun sets. Good night. So if that feels helpful to <laughs> to emulate St. Francis, uh, if that seriously it can bring out the metta. It's actually done in Zen practice. People you know bow to their cushions and you can really take that approach. If that brings out the metta, particularly in your informal time, then then consider that. And we'll work more specifically with that spirit when we move near the end of the retreat to working with all beings. So the second of the hindrances is related to the far enemy of metta. The far enemy would be the opposite of metta, and that's usually seen as hatred. So metta is taken as the direct antidote towards hatred. And we can think of hatred as a version, or let's say one type of aversion. And metta in many ways is an antidote to several types of aversion, such as hatred, such as judgment, such as anger, which really uh, block that, that warm heart. And so in our practice, we do find, as we were looking at um, in the discussion this morning, that there is a way that hatred can arise in metta. There is a way that it can be hatred of self, hatred of others. Particularly, um, judgments can arise. Judgments of self, judgments of others can, can very powerfully arise in doing the metta practice. And anger can arise as well. And I want to talk a little bit specifically about judgments and then about anger because there's some very uh, helpful ways of working with these energies. And in fact, I think that for many of us, some sustained work with these energies is a large part of our practice, both here and outside of the retreat. That's certainly been the case for myself. We see particularly when we sit here, we, we, may, we may see a lot of judgment. I certainly have heard that in interviews. We may ask ourselves, you know, why is it that I'm not experiencing more metta? Is there something wrong with me? 
And we may find the voices being even strengthened that are in a way the opposite of metta, the voices that say, uh, I'm not good, I'm not adequate, you know, I'm not a loving person. We have to be able to identify those voices. And that's the way that, one way that metta is a kind of purification process. It brings, can bring that out, bring out those qualities of judgment. And they can be very uh, difficult to work with. They can sometimes be paralyzing, in fact. They can make us think that we should stop metta because I'm not suited for metta. I'm not a loving person. Or we might go into some of the judgments which we have about our life choices or about something that's happened or about what we've done. And these can very much come up on metta retreats. They can come up in really uh, partly because um, we're so busy in our lives. And just to come to a retreat, sometimes there's that strong residue from all the activity of the past weeks. And sometimes it surfaces as some kind of regret or or judgment, some kind of sense that we haven't done something as we wish to, that something's not going right. And it's very common for that to come up in in these retreats. So how do we work with that sense of judgment? It's actually also very, we can work in a similar way with with anger when it comes up. If it's not so strong, as I said, we can let it be in the background. And we can um, continue with the metta phrases and not worry so much about it. If the judgments or the anger become strong, then we can work in a variety of ways. One way is to move, as we were um, suggesting this morning, to Vipassana practice, to insight practice. And so the first thing that would really be important when the judgments are strong is actually to name them, to know this is happening. There are judgments forming. There are judgments here. There is that voice that I know well, and that voice is present, and to name it, to name the judgments, to know that it's happening. We can work in the spirit of insight practice with judgments as well. We can name them. We can watch what they're like when they're there. If they stay for a while, we can see what the mental part of it is. We can get a sense of what it's like in the body and in the heart. We can really inquire into the judgment using insight practice, One technique which I have used a lot, which is very powerful sometimes, if there are judgments that are present for quite a while, it can be very helpful, not, as Guy was suggesting, not to really buy in so much to the stories, but to let the stories run their course and then see what's in the body and in the heart, to do what we sometimes call dropping down to the body and the heart when the judgment arises and being present with the judgments in our bodies and hearts. And sometimes we find, if we listen there, that there are other forces that may be 
deeper than the judgment, deeper than the anger that might, might in some way be driving those difficult energies. And so one way to practice is to let the voices recede into the background and be at the level of the body, be at the level of the heart and listen. When the judgments are no longer so strong, we can go back to the metta. And in fact, metta is a very direct antidote, as as we would think, to the energy of judgment. And I think that when we work in a long-term way with self-judgment or judgment of others, my own, my own uh, work has really been almost equally divided between doing inquiry and mindfulness about judgments or about anger and then metta. I think they complement each other very beautifully. In a way, one goes directly into the phenomenon and the other one goes more indirectly to change the underlying conditions by cultivating the open heart. Some other ways to work with these kind of difficulties. Another way is to use humor, if that's appropriate, to to, to cultivate a spacious mind, and this takes a certain amount of um, openness, but sometimes, sometimes a sense of spaciousness and sometimes even a warm humor can be very wonderful for healing. And I was thinking partly of my own experience here. About two years ago, I received some further uh, training, um, partly linked with taking more of a teaching role, which is that I enrolled in the Clown School of San Francisco. And I did some work, which was very much work with some of these difficult energies. And clowns work with these difficult energies all the time. And so, for example, I'll just give one example of this. That it's, kind of, it's, kind of a, it's kind of strong medicine. But one, one of the practices that we did very much at the beginning was we were asked to walk across a room. And 10 or 15 people noticed how we walked and told us what was a little bit odd about our walk. (laughs) Then my work as a clown was to embrace what was odd, exaggerate it, and make it completely public. (laughs) And I don't know, I'm not, I hope this is helpful. But it's just, there's a, there's a way in which at a certain point of maturity, I think, we, when we, I think this is really dependent on really knowing our stuff pretty well. And I don't, want, I don't want at all want to suggest this when we're at the first stages of working with judgment. But at a certain stage of familiarity with our judgments, with our habits, with our patterns, a certain amount of playfulness can be very helpful to kind of play with our shadow stuff. And this is what clowns do. And, and there's actually a, a lot of empathy and warmth in, in, the, in the heart of a clown. Just go watch a Charlie Chaplin film sometime. <laughs> so maybe I'll, I'll stop there about that. Um, sometime I want to um, introduce walking meditation with my clown walk. <laughs> so let me... <laughs> Not, not at this retreat, I think. Um, 
So let me talk about the three other hindrances a little more briefly, because in some ways they are less related to metta practice and more generally related to uh, being on retreat in general. So the third hindrance or difficult energy is translated as sloth and torpor, and it manifests in our metta practice as sleepiness, as a lack of energy, qualities of being foggy, um, sometimes a lack of concentration. One of the most interesting ways that it manifests in a meta retreat is what I, I, I don't know if this phrase came from Sally, but I first heard it from Sally. It's called the meta muddle. <laughs> and this is when our phrases start becoming completely ridiculous. <laughs> that, uh, and you may have noticed that. You know, I found myself yesterday... I found myself saying, you know, one of, my, one of my phrases is, may I be safe and free from harm. And so sure enough, at one point my phrase became, may I be safe and free from form. <laughs> Another point, the phrase became, may I be safe and free from squirm. And I remember, I remember hearing from Sally that one of hers was, may I be limited? <laughs> or may I be free from something? <laughs> and, uh, and at other times, it just, I know I also found at one point, um, the metta yesterday just really kind of degenerated into just kind of almost the words were almost not there. It was, there was a little bit of uh, haze. And it was like, and so this may be familiar to you <laughs> at times. And that's, um, that would be a sign of uh, sloth and torpor. <laughs> and so what to do about it? And this is actually uh, something that does come up in the interviews and that we talk about quite a bit. What to do when, when there is this sleepiness or fogginess or lack of concentration, I think the first thing is, again, to use the mindfulness and just to know that it's happening. We can use the mindfulness practice in a very, very skillful way to actually let us know what's occurring. Because it's only when we know what's occurring that we'll actually say, can I apply a skillful way of working with it? And so with all of these hindrances, just to say, okay, this is happening, is really key and really crucial. And so sometimes the sense of sleepiness or low energy may be because we actually need to rest. And particularly, this may have particularly been there on the first day or the second day, if you came from a very busy life before retreat and had enormous number of things to do and sort of came here and collapsed in a puddle. And then you might act, there might actually be some real tiredness. But more frequently, and especially after the first day or so, what we usually find is that sleepiness is there for other reasons. That if we're sleepy or foggy, it may be for the reason that, for example, we have an imbalance in a way between our concentration and our energy. That we may have a certain amount of concentration, but our energy may be very low. If that's the case, then we can do things which rouse the energy. 
we can stand up, we can take uh, a brisk walk, we can um, maybe do some yoga or stretching at one point during the day, or we can uh, sit up in a straighter way, we can take deep breaths. You know, Jack Kornfield was given the guidance when he was sleepy. He was um, invited by his teacher, Achan Cha, to sit at the edge of a well that went down about 60 feet. <laughs> I don't know, we haven't really designed a well here for, for problems of sleepiness among meditators, but, um, but you, can, you can work with, work with the sleepiness or the, the difficulties of, in that way. You, can, you might see it as an imbalance of concentration and energy and see if rousing the energy is helpful. Sometimes you can do that become, by becoming a little more precise with the metta, to really use the phrases a little more clearly with a little more um, fullness behind them. The fourth of the hindrances is restlessness, which in a way can be the opposite of sloth and torpor. Sometimes that can be caused by an excess of energy and not enough concentration. So that we may be really very, very active in our minds. We may have energies moving in our bodies that feel like it's kind of making us come out of our skin. We can feel very restless sometimes. And that is uh, quite often a sign that the concentration is behind the energy. And what we can do in those kind of situations is we can do that which helps concentration. We can, um, if, it's, if it's feeling that way, we can try to build more metta concentration. Or we can maybe for a while do five or ten minutes of insight practice and work with the breath in a very concentrated way. We may even do something like counting, where we count the breaths and try to come, try to develop the mind to be more concentrated. Generally, with continued practice, those kind of imbalances work themselves out. That a lot of what happens in our practice is that over time, in a way, we're taking more energy into our systems. And there are periods of time in which we feel, in which we're not, we haven't really integrated that energy. And it can manifest as restlessness. It can manifest as feeling kind of antsy. So just to know if that's happening, that that is a very normal part of practice that can occur. The last hindrance is in a way the most difficult or one of the most difficult. And that's the hindrance that's called doubt. And this can manifest in our metta practice as a doubt about ourselves, as I mentioned, that I'm not really a loving person or I'm not even really a good person. And it can be really uh, sobering to feel those thoughts come up. It can actually also, uh, we can trigger further judgments because we're being judgmental. We can be judgmental about being so judgmental, or we can be judgmental about having so many doubts. And so it can, you can see how it can proliferate, and it can be a kind of paralyzing energy. So 
um, it's very important to really see doubt when it's occurring and notice it. There can be doubts about the practice. We might say, you know, uh, well, this metta may work for some people, but it doesn't work for me. You know, it's too mechanical. I should, I should develop my metta by going dancing. Or I should develop my metta. Wouldn't it be better to develop metta by being close to nature on a two-week vacation rather than being here with these phrases? And doubt can appear like that. We can also have doubts about whether, you know, what am I going to do with the metta? Am I just going to be this smiling, nice, kind person that everyone in the world just stomps on? You know, there can be doubts even about how am I going to, how am I going to deal with metta in the world? Is it really going to work? What about those mean people on all those TV shows? There are some of them are actually on the street. They might, what am I going to do? Or what do I do at work with people who are mean to me? How is metta going to, going to work? And it's, those, are, those are beautiful, genuine questions, but they can be paralyzing sometimes. And so it's very important to, um, as in the other work with the hindrances, to first of all know that doubt is occurring, to name it, to mention that doubt is present, and to see that it's there. If it's not so strong, we can just continue with the metta. If it's quite strong, we can again bring mindfulness to the practice, mindfulness to the awareness of the doubt. We can also work with the doubt through the power of reflection. We can reflect that, we can reflect on whether the development of metta, the development of love is important to us, and we can consider its value, and know that it's not easy to develop. So some kind of reflection on the whole process can be very valuable. We can ask ourselves, what's really important for me? We can think of, if we're having self-judgments and doubts in that way, we can really reflect on the good things we've done, as we've mentioned before. We can bring to mind the positive qualities. We can imagine ourselves, for example, as a child. You know, and I, I know I've done quite a lot of periods of time of using my, myself as a child in metta. And sometimes that can evoke the sense of goodness that's harder for us to, to know as an adult. In some ways, we also can cultivate the quality of faith, that this is a journey that's not always so easy. It has these difficulties. And as we do the practice more, we get a sense of the ups and downs of the practice. We get a sense of how doubt arises. And after we become more familiar with doubt, it becomes, as it were, less of a fearsome stranger and more someone that we become familiar with. And in a way, this is the spirit that we encourage in terms of working with these difficult energies, that we want to, in a way, get to know them well. In a sense, after a while, they become energies that we know on this journey, that we, that we have a sense that they're, that they're there, that we know them, we know this voice 
We may tell the voice that says that we're not good. We may say, today, um, I recognize you're here. Nice that you're visiting. I actually, I'm not going to listen to you today. Have a good time. (laughs) We can do things like that. We can, as we become more familiar with the difficult energies, with the hindrances, it's like when they come, they come, and we have a sense of faith of something that's a longer journey in which the difficulties are part of the journey. One of the things which has always uh, moved me, actually moved me often the most, is how some people in the midst of difficulties can manifest a quality of love. And I'll just mention to to finish a few of these examples because I think it's the spirit of this is to work with the difficulties, to learn from the difficulties, and to keep the metta going and know in the long run that there is something much deeper than the difficulties, much deeper than the difficult energies, and that's that brightly shining quality in our hearts. It's that quality of kindness that, that I talked about at the beginning. One of the places that I've really been inspired is in watching films of the civil rights movement and seeing in particular older African-American men and women who've had, in some ways, difficult lives, in a lot of ways, difficult lives, really both affirming their own goodness and standing up to oppression. In other words, maintaining love in very difficult circumstances, and it's it often brings tears to my eyes to just, just see those images. For I think of a friend who had a very difficult childhood. And I was talking with her a little while ago, and she was saying, you know, I had such a difficult childhood, and I feel, you know, like I'm really intelligent, and if I didn't have this difficult childhood, I would be a famous writer, or I would be a professor somewhere and really doing wonderfully. And she says, sometimes I feel like giving up, but I know those voices and I can listen to them and I keep going. And I really affirm my own goodness in the face of those voices. It's a very powerful statement. It's really a metta towards herself and it's a familiarity with those voices. Maybe the last thing I'll say is is a um, very similar sense of metta amidst difficulties. And this is from one of my friends who is also a mentor. Some of you may know his name, Houston Smith, who's one of the great um, scholars of the world religions. And he's 85 now. And he broke his hip and he has a lot of difficulties. And he talks as an 85-year-old about the importance of dignity and grace at every part of the process, even when there are difficulties, being able to be with the difficulties of aging and have the dignity and the grace and the love still be primary. I think that's the spirit with which we approach the practice. It's the spirit with which we approach these difficulties or hindrances. And we keep coming back to that spirit, naming the difficulties, knowing what they are, being skillful, but keeping on remembering that spirit of metta that really uh, is deeper than the difficulties.
Well, thank you very much. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.